Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Uh, but anyway, let's jump right into Romans 13 because there is a lot to cover this morning. And since I've been out of the pulpit for two weeks, you know that I've got a lot of catching up to do and you know that I'm already long-winded as it, as it is. So I hope you packed a lunch, maybe even a dinner, all right? Uh, verse number one. Paul is the writer here, of course, under the authority of God and the, uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, let everyone submit or let everyone be subject to the governing authorities or the powers that be. We could stop there and say, all right, I don't want to hear this and go home, right? Since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant or God's minister for your good that was the last time you thought about your government and said, it's God's appointed minister for my good. And that's what it says. But if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit. That's the second time we see the S word, right? Not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those who you owe taxes, tolls to those who you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And in all things and in all subjects, I thank you for your word. Thank you that we have this wise instruction and uh, this holy command for us is our relationship to the government, to civil authorities. We see now, Father, that the gospel doesn't just, just encompass the things that we do and talk about in church, but it encompasses every aspect of our lives, even our, our family relationships, our friend relationships, our coworker relationships, our church relationships, but also our relationship with those who have authority over us and with our government. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak loud and clear. This is one that is very easy to inject a lot of personal bias and a lot of just fleshly wisdom or, or just, just human-based wisdom, Father, but I pray that you would be the one who teaches in the room today. I ask you this morning to speak to us and open our hearts, our minds, to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray and the church said... Amen. Let everyone submit to the governing authority since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Wow, thanks Paul, right? So right out of the gate, you can tell that this is gonna be one of those sermons that really applies to every one of us because we are all governed, right? There are some passages where we look, well, that applies to some people. I, I love it. There, there, there's a sweet lady in our church, and I won't say her name, but she's my mother-in-law. And she comes up to me after service a lot of times and says, man, those people really needed that one today, Derek. You did a really good job. This is one that we all need today, right? Because we are all the governed. We are all under some form of authority in our lives. Even if we don't like it, we don't like to admit it, we are under authority. And I know that as we live in the United States of America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, we love our freedom. But are we truly and honestly ever really absolutely free? No, we're not. Because we live in a created world created by God who is a God of order and he is a God of, of, of systems and he puts things in place. You don't believe me? Look at the universe, Right? We've seen, with the new telescope that was launched, we've seen some amazing views of our solar system and of the universe around us. We've seen further into the universe than we ever have. And you know what I see? A lot of people, when they look at that, they say, man, look at how this chaos has been organized. But I look at this and I say, it's not chaos. It's a beautiful tapestry that is put together by the order of a creative God. And all things have order. And so God drills down and has order in the home, order in school, order in the church, order in military, order in government. And this is where we see this this morning. 
So we've looked at the, the vast majority of 2022, we've been looking at the subject of the gospel, and now we're looking at what happens when the gospel goes to Washington, specifically how the believer should relate to civil authorities. Chapters 1 through 11, we saw what the gospel is, how it came to be, what God wants to do with it. Now in chapter 12, we turn that corner, say, how does the gospel apply to my life before I get to heaven? Now that I'm saved and on the way, how does the gospel affect my life while I'm waiting for that trumpet call or for me to wake up one day in the beautiful, in the beautiful air of heaven? Does the gospel have an effect on my life right now as I wait? And the answer is, yes, it absolutely does. As a matter of fact, it not only has an effect on your church life and your spiritual life and what you do in your devotional time, it has an effect on every aspect of your life, church and secular. It should invade everything. And that's been the basic overarching message. And that's kind of what David Barron left off with is that a gospel-centered Christian ethic should look like this. That the gospel should motivate all of my activity and that the gospel should saturate everything that I do. In other words, it should saturate all my relationships, including, including the relationship that I have with my government. See, you leave off on the, at chapter 12 with this radical teaching in the last few verses that if my enemy is hungry, what should I do? Laugh at him? No, I feed him. If my enemy is thirsty, what should I do? I give them water to drink or something to drink. And I don't lace it with anything, right? I give them something good and probably give them the best of what I have. That's not the way we're wired to respond in the flesh. And then in the very last verse of chapter 12, we see this. It says, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, what do we normally want to do? We want to fight fire with fire, don't we? Only in math do you see that two negatives make a positive. And I don't understand that because it's algebra and it's witchcraft anyway. Right? You fight fire with grace. You fight fire with the living water. And that's what the Bible tells us. The gospel gives us a new way to live. And does anybody else find it funny or ironic that the moment that Paul says overcome evil with good, the very next thing he talks about after he says the word evil is what? The government right? It's almost like you ever played that free association game before? Like, I'm going to say a word, and you say the first word that comes to mind. So it's like somebody was playing that with Paul. Like, Paul, what do you, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Tuesday? Oh, he's like, tacos, right? And then, so what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word evil? And he's like, government. And most of us are probably like that too, right? Because this is the way we live. This is our political society today, right? My party's good. The other party is evil, isn't it? They're, and that's why it's called politics, because it's polar. It's polar opposites, they don't agree, and very, very rarely do we see it come to compromise. And really what we're left with, especially me, I'm left with this kind of idea. is like, man, I, I just feel politically, as a believer now, I feel politically homeless, right? Like, I don't know if I can feel at home in any certain, in, on any certain platform completely and totally, right? But I think that's part of the design because I think it really kind of just, it, it dovetails into what we see in this passage so well, Right? No matter what side of the political aisle that we're on, it seems like when you start talking government and politics, the tone is never friendly. The tone is never positive. It's always negative, right? That's why they say never talk about religion or politics when you get together with somebody. Why? Because politics usually leads to an argument of some sort. Or we tend to look at politics through the eyes of the negative. We only look at what the other people are doing that we don't like, and we hardly ever hold the people that we do like to the same type of scrutiny. You see, when was the last time, let me ask you this, when was the last time that you've been prone to actually call or tweet your representative and say, I really thank God for you? We're always told, call or tweet your representative to tell them that you want them to do this one thing or you, you want them to go this one. When was the last time you just called or wrote or something and said, you know what, I thank you for what you do to serve us. And I really thank God for you. And I can almost guarantee that you've never felt compelled to do that if your representative is from the other team. We're never compelled to do that. And yet our passage today says that what it looks like is the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul, it says to do that very thing. To respect and to honor and to pay your taxes and tolls, and especially on the Florida Turnpike. Why are there so many tolls? And notice there was no caveat there. He doesn't say pay your taxes and show honor if you agree with them or if they're on your team. He says show honor to them because God has placed them in that place of authority. 
And, and as a matter of fact, the political reality that Paul knew as he was writing this passage is way different than the political reality that we know. The truth of the matter is that for the first century church, one of the primary places that they would have, over, they would have had to have overcome evil would have been with the government and would have been with civil authorities. See, Paul said, overcome evil with good. And Jesus said this, bless those who persecute you. He said, bless and curse not. See, most of the people in government, most of the people who had authority at that time over the church or, or, or over, over politics hated the church. They hated Christians. They hated Jews because the Romans were in power. Many of the Jews in Paul's day were part of a group called the Zealots. Simon Peter, one of the disciples, was a zealot as well, which is why you see him later on cutting off an ear and doing stuff like that. I mean, you, you talk about nationalism. He was a nationalist to the core. This is what the zealots wanted. They wanted someone to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted them to overthrow that, that, that power because they saw them as being oppressed and they saw that God would only be happy if the Jewish order was put into place. And then when Jesus came and said, I'm the Messiah, a lot of people thought that Jesus was going to kick Rome to the curb, but then Jesus didn't do that, did he? And that's why they said this couldn't be the Messiah that God would send us because God can only handle a government where he's in control of everything. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter what government's in control, God's always in control. So when this was written, none of the authorities that Paul was writing about were Christian, yet he still says... God has placed them over us and we need to obey. And there were some laws in place that were really tough. There were some people in place that were really rough. See, it's normal for us. I've grown up, you know, you know since Reagan. Reagan was the president when I was born. And so all the way through, you know, you've had, you've had Bush and Clinton and Bush too and all those. I've never heard people. There's always some people who hate the president. There's always some people who love the president. And I think the hate is a little too much. And I think the love is a little too much. Because we put a lot of emphasis on those people. But the next time you're prone to think that the people that are in charge are crazy, I want you to just kind of temper it with the reality of what Paul is writing under. Because when Paul wrote this, the Caesar at that time was a guy named Caligula. And if you've ever studied Roman history, Caligula was a total and absolute wacko. All right, let me, let me give you from, for, some for instances. Caligula had his mom and his brother killed just to make sure they'd never challenge his power. Just said, you know what, I'm in, I'm in charge now. The only reasonable thing I can do is kill you guys. That's, that's the only thing that I can do, right? He openly committed incest with three of his sisters and impregnated some of them. He would frequently cross-dress and go out in public. It's recorded in Roman documents that he installed his favorite horse, Incitatius, as a senator and later promoted him to high council, which is like kind of being part of Caligula's cabinet. So he promoted a horse into the Senate. Can you, th can you think about how that vote went? All in favor say aye, aye, all against, nay. <laughs> My jokes are back too. Once Caligula got mad at the weather, so what does he do? <laughs> he doesn't get out an umbrella. He just declares all out war of the whole Roman Empire on the god Neptune, who was the god of weather and on the god of the seas. He ordered that his soldiers would whip the should go out in the ocean and whip the waves and bring home as many seashells as they could to take plunder from Neptune's treasury. Rome was famous for its great temples and its beautiful statues and their gods. And Caligula decreed that all heads on those statues should be removed and have busts of his head replaced on that. Now, let's put that in context. Let's say that one of our presidents decreed that any artwork or any statue depicting Jesus Christ, the head should be replaced with an image of their face. How do you think that would go over? And Caligula is a bad guy, but then the list just goes on and on. After Caligula, you get Claudius. And Claudius was only a little less horrible. Claudius then hands the crown over to Nero, which we know about Nero a lot. Nero was probably the worst person uh, to offend Christianity in all of history. He built the Roman Colosseum and filled that Colosseum with Christians and animals and watched them be torn apart just because of their faith. One time he had a garden party and he had Christians live living impaled on sticks and had them tarred and torched and with fire to light the garden party all while Rome's elite just sat around and had a good time. So the next time we're prone to criticize our government and say that we're persecuted, let's just keep in the back of our head just where we are in our level of persecution compared to where 
some people have been, and the context with which this is written. This is the context into which Paul writes, everyone submit to the governing authorities over them. What Pastor Tim Keller says is the increasingly secular West is only just beginning in the infant stages to experience the level of hostility of the first century believers and also the hostility that the current 21st century persecuted church feels every day. It's this type of state to which Paul tells Christians to submit to. See, the point is, it's very easy to get on a high horse, no pun intended, based on what Caligula did, and feel righteous saying, I can't honor and I can't follow a political leader who I don't respect as a person and whose policies that I don't approve of. But the truth is that while that stance is easy to take and we may feel very righteous in doing that, it is not biblical to take that stance. I understand that this room is probably full and there's people that are listening that have a whole lot of different political views. You may say, I'm registered as this party member, but I don't agree with everything that's on their, on their platform. And that is probably the case for just about every one of us in here, regardless of which side of the aisle you're on. And so it's with that, that understanding that I can't agree with everything that my government does or says that is okay to do. How should I respond to this? That's what this message is about. So I want to look at two things mainly this morning. Number one, what is God's expectation of government? Because he absolutely has an expectation of government. And what is the expectation of the government, of the governed? Because he definitely has an expectation of the governed. And if you're a believer, the expectation is pretty high. So let's look at this this morning. I know for sake of time, I am flying today because there is a lot in this message to cover. We may end up splitting it into two. I just want to go ahead and give you that. And I really don't. I really don't want to do this for two weeks. Okay. But if we have to, we will. Number one, God's expectation of government. What does God expect of the governments and of the nations of the world? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever asked that question? What does God expect of my government? A lot of times we get kind of drilled down into thinking, you know, separation of church and state and leaving church and religion out of politics. And it's easy to get the idea that God may not have an opinion on government, but he absolutely does. He absolutely does. It's especially easy when you look through history and you look at some of the horrible things that governments of the past have done and you look at some of the atrocities that even modern governments do today and you look at the horrible state of other governments that are persecuting the church today and think God must not be active in government but friend, church, let me tell you he is active in the governments of the world. And that may make us step back and say if he's active, what is he doing in it? Because sometimes you don't necessarily see what God is doing. And you wonder sometimes if some people are right, let's leave God out of politics. But he expects a lot of government and he expects a lot of the governed to do something. And so let's look at verse number one again. The first thing that government is to do, there's a twofold job description for the government. And the first thing is to recognize the authority that God has over it. It would do well and it would be very wise for those who serve in a civil place of authority to understand that they are not the ultimate judge, jury, and executioner of justice. That there is a God who sits on a throne that is higher than a White House or higher than a parliament seat. There is a throne in heaven which our sovereign God will always occupy. No one's going to kick him out. No one's going to oust him. God is always in control. And with that control, he has meted out that authority to governments of nations in our world. Look at what it says. There is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. So we see here is no authority except that it comes from God. And that trickles down not just into, into, into government, but it also trickles down into all kinds of other hierarchical authorities. In the home, in the military, in school. Yes, I said school. It's only a few weeks away. Hope everybody's prepared. Ephesians 6 says that children are to obey their parents as unto the Lord, meaning that submitting to parents is a way of submitting to God. Colossians 3 says that we should have that same attitude to our supervisors at work. That trickles down into teachers, like I said, and soldiers in the military, or any other constituted authority. Our God is a God of order. And in the, in the church, there's a hierarchy of authority as well. But with that authority comes a whole lot of responsibility. Everybody wants to have power. Everybody wants to rule the world. Nobody wants people telling them what to do until they realize that when you get to that place where it doesn't look like anybody around you uh, is higher than you on the, on the flow chart, guess what? That means you answer directly to a higher power. 
directly. And you're going to need all the wisdom and all the strength and all the counsel from God Almighty in order to be able to stand before him one day and say, I have done the best I can by you. With this much sacred authority, it's wise to those that are in authority to recognize that their position is God-given. That means that it will also be God-observed and it will be God-judged. If you're a supervisor at work, not only are you going to be judged and evaluated by the people that are higher up than you, but you will one day be judged by God Almighty for how you displayed the nature of God in the way that you executed the authority that you had. Christian or not, we will all give an answer for that. This is why it's so important, and I know it's just a tag on what a lot of people say, but at the end of many people's oaths that they take as they enter into office, they say the words, so help me God. That's probably the most valuable line in the entire oath because none of the other stuff that precedes it is going to be possible unless so help me God happens. Every person who carries authority will give an account before God for how they executed that authority and how they, were, how they stewarded that authority. That means parents, we're going to stand before God and give an account of our kids. Even for the teenage years, we're going to have to give an account. When you're like, I have no idea what's happening right now. We're still going to give an account. So help me God. There is a function of the government. And that is number two. Number one, to realize their authority comes from God. But number two is to, is to function as agents of God. Our passage says this, that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad And then it goes on to say, it is God's servant for your good. It is an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Did you catch that in verse number four? Look what it says. It says, it is God's servant. It is God's minister. So the role of of one in government is to be a ministry agent of God. And this is where it gets kind of weird. Because not everybody in government is actually a follower of Jesus Christ, yet they still hold an accountability to Christ and to God, and they hold a position that God has actually put in place. So that means that they have a great deal of power, but they also have a great deal of responsibility with that. So they're to execute that power with the heart of a servant. Now, I don't know about you, but when you look at some of our, some of our politicians, it doesn't seem like they always go with the heart of a servant, do they? What happens? Sometimes they get to Washington and all the bright lights get them and stuff and they say, you know what, I'm just going to make a career out of this and this is wonderful. But if it becomes something that I look to just make a career out of and I'm constantly looking at what I'm benefiting from it and getting out of it, I've lost what God intends for me as a leader. Does that make sense? We should always have, as someone who is in the position of authority, should always have the idea that they are a servant first and foremost. This is why we see that the Bible says one of the greatest, that the greatest king of Israel's time was David. He was a man after God's own heart. And guess what David was before he became a king? He was a shepherd, a lowly shepherd. And the way a shepherd serves his sheep, man, is to go into some nasty places and dirty places and do what's best for his sheep at all times because a sheep cannot do what's best for himself. And then later on, we see that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, our Savior, guess what the Bible says he was? He was a lowly carpenter, born, on, born out of the lowest tribe of Judah, the servant tribe out of Judah, and he is also noted to be the great shepherd of us all. See, God honors humble servants. God honors humble leaders. He honors humility and leadership, and that's what we need to look for in our leaders today. A lot of people say, I don't even know who to vote for anymore. One thing that we can look for is humility and one who understands, I have a responsibility to the people that I serve, but I also have a responsibility to God who put me here. So they're to be leaders and they're also to be agents and servants of God. So what do they do? They do two things. This is what God expects of government. Number one is to judge and punish evil. God expects government to judge and to punish evil. You see that in verse number three, that terror, that, that, that rulers are a terror to those who are of bad conduct. Meaning that our rulers should not scare us unless we've done something that's wrong, right? It also says that they do not carry the sword for no reason and that government is to be God's avenger that brings wrath and justice to those who do wrong. You see that word sword there in the passage And it immediately makes you think of, nobody ever thinks of sword as being something that just, you know, taps us on the behind when we do bad, right? When we think of a sword, what do we think of? Death, 
right? You don't wield a sword just to tap somebody on the behind and say, now you be a good little boy. Use that sword for death. And so that immediately makes us think of capital punishment. So here we see, and this is a tough subject. Here we see that it looks like the Bible does say that there are cases where the government has a sacred authority to execute capital punishment. Now, Paul is not laying out a huge philosophy here for just war and for what what we should do about capital punishment because there are a lot of questions about what you do when you carry out capital punishment. Such as, was the person truly guilty? Was the burden of proof actually met? And is that same form of justice being meted out equally among all parties, among all classes, among all ethnicities? Or is it being discriminately applied? There's a lot of things that come into play when it comes into capital punishment and into just war. But here what we see is, what Paul is saying is, the government does have the responsibility and the right to dole out punishment for criminal activity. It says we ca- it carries the sword for no reason and it is to be God's avenger for those who hurt. For those who hurt others. So the main focus of the passage is not to dive into the ins and the outs of lethal force, just war, any of that type of stuff. It's to say that it's to punish the lawless. See, because here's the thing. When governments allow injustice to thrive, and when governments allow lawlessness to thrive, for the strong to trample the weak, whether it be a criminal over an innocent party, or immigrants in court, or the foster child in the home of an abusive parent, or the unborn in the womb, or a private citizen having his religious freedoms crushed by a powerful corporation, when governments allow and promote these kinds of injustices, they're failing at their God-given job, which is to punish lawlessness. And that's what leads to the second thing that they're to do, is they're to recognize and to promote good. The government is there not only to punish lawlessness, but to recognize and to promote what is good. So our text says that the government is not a terror to those who do good, and that it is a servant to, of God to promote good around us. Now again, This is where we have to look at that word good, just like we looked at that word sword, and everybody has an idea of what sword means and what it how it all plays out. Everybody looks at that word good and has an idea of what good means and how what it looks like and what government should do. What this is actually saying is that there are cases that there are cases where the government will have to determine what is good and right for the whole. What we often do in in politics is we argue the morality of issues. Right? We look at an issue and say, well, is it moral? And then we get our ideas of what is moral from what we respect as moral. As believers, we respect the word of God and the commands of God's word as what is morally right. If you don't go to the word of God, you may have a different moral, moral compass. Heck, even those people in churches who look at the same word have different moral compasses today. So we're not talking about executing the morality, but we are talking about covering and providing for the welfare of its citizens. Government is responsible for providing a safe society for its citizens to live in. One where people can, can achieve their dreams. One where people can, can, can have the best life that they possibly can. And where justice and equality prevail. This is the responsibility of government. Again, Paul is not trying to lay out a detailed political philosophy or political platform to get behind here. Because in a lot of countries, it doesn't matter what political platform you have. You don't get a say in the matter. In America, we do. We do get a say in the matter. But it's not that way everywhere. See, free if elections had been held, Paul would have probably never voted for Caligula. Never. He would have probably never voted for Pilate or any of those other people who held office because he probably couldn't agree with them politically. But what he's trying to communicate to us is that God is in control no matter who's in control of our under offices of government. See, God is not just a judge of policy, he's a judge of the heart and the intent as well. See, God not only knows the actions of our government, but he knows the heart behind our governors. There's a lot of people today who will stand at a platform and say, when I get office, I will give you this, 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 and this, and I will vote this, this, and this way. How many times have you seen a politician say, I will vote this way, and then they vote another? See, God not only knows the actions that our government takes, but he knows the heart behind the governors who take it. And they will answer not only for their actions, but for their hearts behind it as well. So those who govern will answer to the ultimate judge and should give 
And that should give peace to those who are governed. Here's the thing. Knowing that God is going to have a meeting with every president, every king, every queen, every senator, that they have an appointment with God one day to answer for that should give the governed peace, especially when they turn on the news and say, what are they doing today? God is going to meet all of that out. And in the midst of that, he is with us. And that's where we turn our attention to what does the governed do? What is the responsibility of the governed? God's expectation of the government is to recognize that God has ultimate authority and to, and to execute punishment on the lawless and to promote good in our society and, and look for the welfare of its people. Now what do the people do? Well, here's what it is. Have you ever considered that your response to your government is just as much a response to God as it is to your government? Kind of changes the way we talk about our presidents and about our governors a little bit, doesn't it? Or it should at least. See, we live in a society where we're free to have, we can have free speech, right? And, and it's kind of fun to tune in on the late night show and hear, hear uh, you know, the late night show hosts, you know, make jokes about the president or about, about the governors or about celebrities and things like that. But the thing is, is that a lot of times the words that flow from our mouth is really the intent of our heart, isn't it? So the first thing that we have to do, just like government, we have to recognize that government is God's authority on earth. Government's authority comes from God. See, just as God expects the government to realize that their authority comes from God, he expects us to realize that our leader's authority comes from God as well. And that means that obeying our authority is the same and equated to obeying God. If God has ordained government under his authority, then he has sovereign control and authority over it. See, even in democracies that elect their officials, God is the one that's in control. You may think you have control, but God does. Because God moves the hearts of men and women, and God moves the hearts of kings and queens, and God moves all of those things. And you may wonder, then, especially if your team is not in control right now, you may wonder, then, what's God doing? Right? Because we get arrogant sometimes. Say, How could God be doing anything different than what I'm thinking he should be doing? Look at verse number two. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. So what this tells me is that even when my team isn't in office, God still expects me to respect the team that is in office and to respect the leaders that are there because they are God's minister and they are God's agent. And then in verse number three, it goes on to say that if you don't want to be afraid of your government, then just obey the law and do what is good. Not only will they approve of you, but God will then approve of you too. That's, easy. That, 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 that's tough, isn't it? You say, well, yeah, obviously I'm not going to go out and kill anybody or, or, or and I'll, I'll probably pay my taxes. And after looking for every loophole that I can possibly find, I'll probably pay my taxes. Even though the party, want, even, though, even though this guy or that, that person wants to raise them, I'll pay them. We're going to get to how we pay them and the spirit with which we pay them in just a second. But this means that I do this even if I respect the law or if I don't. Because there are laws I don't really respect. There are laws I don't really like. But unless they are calling me to defy God, I have to obey them because obeying them means I'm obeying God. And that's hard, especially because there's laws that we don't like, right? I don't like speed limits on the interstate. Anybody with me? I don't like, I'd like to announce my candidacy to run for office. I want to eliminate all speed limits. No, I'm just teasing. There's laws that we don't like, right? I don't like speed limits on the interstates because the truth is I don't like speed limits pretty much anywhere except for in a neighborhood where I'm walking Bentley. That's the only place because I, when I want to go somewhere, I want to get there and I think I'm responsible enough to get there as fast as I can get there. See, because I think they didn't really put speed limits out there for people like me. They put it out for other people who don't know how to drive, right? So Florida, I found myself freaking out. Every, and here's the thing. I found myself driving to Florida on the interstate, freaking out every time I would pass a car that was on the shoulder, Right? Especially one that was either white or gray. Why, why was I freaking out every time I approached a car on the shoulder? Why, why, come on, help me out. Why? Because you think it might be a state, a state trooper, right? Why would I be worried that a state trooper is parked on the side of the road? Why? And Stacy freaks out more than I do. She's like, Derek, there's a car up there. And I'm like, I know. And she's like, do you really? Because she looks and she can see my speedometer. She knows that I'm doing a solid 80, which is what I think is a comfortable place to drive, not 70. Anybody with me? Okay, no amens. Okay, maybe it's just me. 
She knows, and I know, that I'm breaking the law. And so therefore, I have to watch out for all of those troopers that might be out there. If I was doing 70, would I have to be as worried? Even if you're doing 65, don't you still go, oh man, do I need to check my speed? Don't you still do that just because you freak out? Why is that? Because of what the Bible says right here. Do you not want to be afraid of your government? Then just do what the government says, right? If you don't want to be afraid of getting caught breaking the law, then don't break the law. Why? Because the government has that, God, that God-given wield, power to wield to punish you for it. Luckily, I made it without getting caught. But here's the thing that hit me when I got home and started looking at this dead burn passage. Just because I didn't get caught by the Florida government doesn't mean that God didn't see what I did. And so I've been following the speed limit ever since, haven't I, ladies? Because I haven't driven anywhere. <laughs> Except for the church this morning. So we have this responsibility to recognize that God is over government. And when we obey the laws of the government, it's just the same as obeying God's ways of setting things up. Now, we have to fulfill our God-given obligations to government as well. Not just respect the government, but then fulfill our obligations to government. Look at verses 5 through 7. Therefore, you must submit. Now, remember when I said th this was going to meddle in how we submit as well? Here it goes. Not just because of the wrath that you could incur, but also because of your conscience. What does that mean? Not only do I daggone obey the speed limit because I don't want to get caught, I have to obey the speed limit because... It's my desire to honor God. That's not fun, is it? He says, don't just do it because you might get caught. Do it because it's your, it's your joy to obey. Now, living in the United States of America, a nation, by the way, that was born out of rebellion, this is not wired into the way we live our lives, is it? But this should be wired into the way the gospel changes the way we live our lives. We see a few obligations here in our text as it says in verse number six, for this reason you pay taxes since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to the tasks of caring for you. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect and honor to those you owe those things to. So we see a few obligations here. So lest we be confused, let's look at these. Number one is to submit. We actually see this word twice, right? We see it in the opening line of our text and then we see it in verse number five following a word therefore. He's like, like submit to authorities and he already knows people are gonna start balking at that and then he gives all the reasons why we should and then he says, therefore, go ahead and submit not just because you have to but because you should want to because this is what God says honors him. And this is when it says that we submit not just because we're afraid of getting caught but because of our conscience. My conscience as a believer should compel me to be an upstanding citizen. This is a quote that I kind of just wrote down and sometimes as I'm working on my sermons, I'll come with this one-liner quote that I end up writing down and keeping because I want to remember these. Is that my conscience as a believer should compel me to be an upstanding citizen. And if you want to put this message or this teaching all in one word, all in one line, that's it. Is that my conscience as a believer should compel me to be an upstanding citizen. See, it's the opposite of me speeding because I don't think I'll get caught or when people don't report things on their taxes because there's no paper trail that can lead to getting caught. That's not why we obey and that's not how we obey. Brothers and sisters, we don't tell the truth to our government. We don't obey the laws because we might get caught. We do so because we know that our life is an act of worship and we worship a God of truth and justice and we drive and we fill out our taxes as an act of worship to a God who sees everything. I dare you after hearing this to speed on the way home from church today. Right? Now there is one exception. And we're all sitting here thinking it. There is a limit to this command to obey government. It is when government, when obeying government requires us to disobey God. There is an exception. When obeying government, when the laws of the land call for us to actively disobey God, that is when God's people begin to operate outside of the law. When the government says, you shall not preach the word of God. When the government says, you shall not gather for worship or be able to put your services out on a live stream. When the government says that you should not speak about your God. That is when you see problems. We see evidences of that in the book of Acts. When Paul and Peter are brought before leaders and they always say, 
Just like Martin Luther said during the Reformation, here I am, I'm a minister of God's word, I must preach the gospel. Jesus was put into that position as well. When people ask, do I follow the government or do I follow God? And he has this beautiful answer, which I'll, I'll close with here in just a minute. But when this happens, we are duty bound to God to practice civil disobedience. I love what commentator John Stott says. He says, a believer's ultimate allegiance is to God. This is why we're following the government to begin with. It's because God said to do it, right? This is what Paul said at the very beginning. Our ultimate allegiance is to God. And whenever the demands of a secular society clearly violate higher allegiance, the Christian will then act outside the law. This, however, must not be done in a cavalier or arrogantly sinfully defiant fashion. And this is what is concerning to me as I think about our political climate today. As I think about Christians talking about civil, civil disobedience and defying their government, a lot of the things that we're talking about doing that for is not personally compelling you personally as a believer to defy God, number one. And number two, we're not doing it in a civil way. We're doing it in an aggressive and in an arrogant and in an almost violent fashion sometimes. Let me just give you an example. The answer to the abortion issue in our country was never for Christians to go and blow up an abortion clinic. Never was. Because they violated God's law to, to try to obey another. Civil disobedience is just that. It is civil. And so we must obey and we must submit to authority but we must submit mostly to God's. And then we also have to support the government. And these are going to be fast points. He says this, pay your taxes, pay your tolls. To put that in the context of today, pay your income taxes and pay your sales tax. Don't look for ways around it and do what you can because supporting the government that supports us, nobody likes paying taxes. Probably nobody likes the, the, how much taxes are but the government is responsible for providing roads, for providing national safety, providing 911 services that we all benefit from, and our taxes go to help with those things. Are there places our taxes are going to that we think are ridiculous? Probably. But that is for God to wage with the leaders. So we must support our government in the ways it is asked. And then he says to honor those who govern us as well. He says, give respect and honor to those who you owe respect and honor to. And we're running very short on time today, so let me cut to the chase. Let me just ask you this question. When you talk about the president, is it with respect and is it with honor? When you talk about the governor or your boss or your parents or your teachers, do you do so with respect and with honor? And I know what you're thinking here because I think this too. If I don't think they're respectable or if I don't agree with their policies, then why should I talk about them respectfully? Because I'm supposed to speak truth too, right? This is, after all, a nation that is one that is built on free speech. Listen, Paul didn't res respect or agree with Caligula at all, yet he still penned these words. Paul didn't agree with a lot of the people that he stood before, with Agrippa and those people that he stood before, yet he still obeyed what they said until they said, don't obey God. Jesus as he stood before the Sanhedrin, respected their authority, but respectfully reminded them that their authority was given by God. Civil disobedience comes down to the place and respect for authority. You can still civilly disobey by showing honor and respect to those who God has allowed to be in office of authority over us, even if they're executing that authority in a godless way. That sometimes makes our mind go, What? But I encourage you to get in this passage and read it and pray, God, what should I do? How should I relate to a government that I believe? Now, I'm not saying that this, but in the case that we get to that place where I disagree, God, what do you expect for me to do? How do I respond even though I disagree? And then we are to engage. And this one is not written down necessarily in the passage, but it's implied through the whole thing. This isn't telling us to just sit idly by and do or say nothing. Because we live in a country where we actually have a say. We have a vote. And still, an overwhelming number of people choose not to use that voice. I believe it's a responsibility that we have to be involved in that and to engage in that. We have an opportunity to cast a vote. We're told to be salt and light by Jesus Christ. Here's how we engage with government. We engage with government the exact same way we engage with a lost and dying world. We just live the gospel before their eyes. 
We live like Jesus before their eyes and we also have an ability. <laughs> this is beautiful. Have you, ever, have you ever just been on the phone with somebody at, at, at a corporation and you're not getting where you want to go? Customer service maybe? Do they ever just get so annoying with you that you finally go, what do you normally say? When you feel like you've gone as far as you can with somebody on the phone, what do you normally say? Do you have a supervisor? Do you, do, do you have somebody above you that can make this happen then, right? Some of you are supervisors and you're the one who gets those calls, right? And by the time they talk to you, you, they're already inflamed. Here's what the Bible says. We have a direct line to the ultimate supervisor. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and I promise we'll be done. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse number 1 says, First of all then, I urge you that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings... And for all those who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You know what this verse is saying? I have an open line to the highest authority. And if I don't believe that the people that God's put in authority over me are doing their job Godward, guess what I get to do? I get to talk to God about it. But that also means that after I've done that, I walk away and I get back to the business of praying and obeying them and respecting them because I've given my issue with them to God. Does that make sense? It's beautiful too because it lays it all off of us. I cast my vote. I pray that they will do what God wants. And when they don't, I pray for them to God that he would control their hearts to do what God wants. And then it's between them and God. And that's what leads to the last thing. It all comes down to an issue of trust. See, this one isn't written verbatim in there as well, but it's implied too. It's because God is over everything. That means I trust God. I trust God with my prayer. I trust God with what he's doing. And I trust that he is making all things right. He's doing everything. He's the ultimate one in charge. And the way we live today, and here, what I see, you know, what we see on the news, and there's all kinds of chaos. Anybody else just get a sense that we're all losing our minds in our country lately? That we can't disagree. If, if, if you're not with me on, on everything, then you're against me on everything. Or It's all nuts, right? And, and, and it's not just enough that we disagree. If you disagree with me, you are then evil, morally, ethically, spiritually, all of it. That's just where we're at today in our society. You know what that reveals? When God's people engage in that? It reveals a lack of trust in God. It reveals a lack of faith in his control and in his authority. Even in the midst of godless governments, God still works. I, 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 catch this. Even in the midst of godless governments, God still works. God worked during the first century of the church to turn the world upside down for Christ, regardless of the fact that Claudius and Nero were trying to kill off all the Christians. He tried to kill them, and guess what? They grew even more. And here, here's a beautiful thing. Taxes and all that type of stuff. When the godless government was in control, that's when we got the Messiah. God used an oppressive taxation of the Roman government to move the Messiah from Nazareth to Bethlehem so it could fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah would come from a little town called Bethlehem. Don't tell me that God can't work in godless government. And that God doesn't have control. He does. So here's the message to the church. Stop worrying so much and start sharing your faith. One amen, that's good. <laughs> Just teasing. This is, this is the beauty of it all. We can leave it with God and we can get back to doing what God has called us to do. And that is to lead others to Christ. Think about Nebuchadnezzar evil guy, hated Christians. And what did God do? God brought him to his knees to show his power. Darius, who, was, who said, you won't pray to anyone but me. And guess what happened? Daniel spends a night in the lion's den, comes out, and Darius all of a sudden becomes a believer. Cyrus in the Old Testament was against, was holding people in captivity, yet paid for the rebuilding of their city walls. God knows what he's doing and he works in the midst of godless governments too. And he can work in the midst of your life and your situation as well. And here's why. I want to close with this illustration this morning. When Jesus was here ministering on earth, the Pharisees obviously couldn't stand him. So what did they do? They brought him a coin one day and they threw it and flipped it at him and said, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes? Now that was a loaded question. Because again, at that time, everyone in the Jewish realm hated the Romans. 
And they thought that God was going to eventually deliver them from the Romans. And so they did not want to pay taxes. And here's why. And this, adding insult to injury, adding all of this, that they were oppressed by the government. They were being told to pay more. Tax collectors were hated. We've talked in the past about what the tax collectors did to just not only collect the taxes that Rome were asking, but then they also were illegal and taking even more money. I mean, taxes were a huge issue. And there were a lot of people saying, I won't pay my taxes. I refuse to pay my taxes. And a lot of them were the religious people. And so they threw it at him and said, I know that if Jesus says, pay your taxes, we're going to get a lot of Jews mad at him. But if he had said, don't pay your taxes, the Roman people that heard him would have gotten mad at him too for being an anarchist. So they put him in a lose-lose situation. You know what Jesus did? He looked at that coin and he said, whose image is on this coin? And at that time, the image on that coin was Caesar's image. And they all said, well, it's Caesar's image. And so Jesus says this. And this, is, this is amazing. He says, then pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. And the Bible says, there's, there's a little passage in Matthew 22 that says, they marveled at what he said. To us, it looks like a simple statement, right? Until you dig a little deeper into what he was saying. You see, the image of Caesar was on that coin because that was the Caesar that instituted that coin. They put the Caesar that had gotten that treasure and gotten that gold by victory on there and said it belongs to him and I let you have it by my, by my will but I want some of this back. They were acting like God themselves. But if you look back in scripture, what does the Bible say? What image does the Bible say is on us? The Bible says that we were created in the image of who? Of God. So what that means is that God's image is all over all of us. So yeah, give Caesar his money because his image is on that. But give God what belongs to him and you can see it by what image is on, what his image is on and that's you and me. So what he's saying is, give Caesar your taxes but give God your everything. You see, it reminds us of who's ultimately in control. When it all comes down to it, our taxes, the way our politics go, the way all that stuff... All of that's part of that human image. But the image of God that exists all over us is spiritual. It's the soul. It's the eternal. Is God's image on you? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you recognize that the ultimate authority is not in the White House, but it's in the throne of heaven? Do you recognize that obeying your government and being an upstanding citizen is the same as following God? And a lot of times what we do is we sit here and I see it happening and hear about it happening as I talk to other pastors is politics is dividing a nation but it's also dividing our churches today. And when I say that, I don't mean that everybody has to agree politically but we should agree on the fact that we all serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and he's working all of that out and to trust him together. So as we close out this morning, I'd like, we normally say, hey, if you have any needs but I want, I want to ask you this. Will you commit, will you commit for a month solid for the next 30 days, the end of the month, for the month of August, will you commit every day to pray for your leaders? And not just pray, God, just give them what they deserve. No, pray for them and find a way to honor them and thank God for them, regardless of whether you believe them or not. If you'll commit to that, would you just do that? Let's start today as a church and pray together for that. But if you have an, another need, if you don't know Christ, whatever it may be, would you come today as well? Heavenly Father, have your will and way in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.